my uh, regular job is to teach school. And uh, this week in the uh, faculty lounge, one of the teachers was telling a story about their t-ball experience. Now, t-ball is for children, you know, the little six- and seven-year-olds. And this teacher was talking about her son, who's in kindergarten, and he's beginning to assert his independence. And so they're warming up for the t-ball game, and he looks at his mom and he goes, I've got to go to the bathroom. And he sprints away. Well, on the baseball field, the only thing that was available was the portalette. So she's a little panicked because he's never been in a portalette before, but she wanted to also honor his independence. So she kind of follows slowly behind him as he's going to the portalette. Well, he gets there and does his thing before she gets there. And the door flies open and he comes running back out. And she goes, wait. And he says, don't worry, everything's good. I wash my hands and everything. And off he goes. And she's thinking, washed his hands. You know, usually it's the hand sanitizer thing. So she, and he yells back. He goes, they had soap too. And off they go. So she decides to kind of investigate and she opens the door. And, you know, to someone that's about this tall, when you walk into the portalette, you know, you have the, the toilet here and then the urinal here. And there's that blue disc, the deodorant. And he had used that as his sink and soap. And, of course, horrified, she turns and chases after him and uh, uses uh, an entire box load of hand sanitizer on him to try to get him back to where he can play t-ball. So uh, this morning, we're kind of in that situation for some of us, right? We are approaching the Word of God, and we look at it, and we think something about it that might be true, that we might be able to use it for, but we're not sure, and it's like, where do we go from here? So this morning, what I would like for us to do is try to understand the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, words that we will use interchangeably this morning, to try to, to understand the kind of the historical support and uh, issues that help us kind of more ably defend and understand what the Bible is all about. Now, for those of you that are veteran, uh, will you indulge me as we review just a little bit? And those of you that are new, maybe this will help you to understand what we're talking about. And when we talk about the Bible or God's Word or the Scriptures, we're talking about uh, one book, okay? One book that has several chapters to it. Okay? Uh, like, for example, I look at the Bible and then I think there are 66 chapters to the Bible. Now, you call them books, but I think you get the idea. When we call it one book, you need to always realize that we aren't reading a collection of sayings, but we are reading a book that all of those collections of sayings are part of. So always keep in mind it's one book, one whole book. Another thing to remember is that there is one author of this book. Now, there are several writers, but there is only one author. Uh, there are probably 40 writers that over 2,000 years wrote the, the, the chapters or the books of the Bible, but there is one author. If you have your Bible, take and turn to Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, well, let's start at verse 14. Uh, Paul is talking to young Timothy, and he says to him, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those things from whom you have learned, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
and uh, so on. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is, I'm not trying to prove something to you. I'm just reminding you of something that you already know. And that is that these are scriptures that are beneficial to you because they are God-breathed. Again, this is not a polemic. You know, Paul's not saying, Timothy, let's defend the scripture. He's saying, you know this. This is a truth that's there. And so when we talk about authorship, we're talking about the power and the authority of God in this book. He is the author of these works. Now, be careful and don't think of it in terms of uh, these guys were like stenographers in a courtroom where they're just merely taking down words. Uh, each personality of the writers is revealed as they write. You know, the, the, the attitude, the culture, uh, all of those things were a part of it. Uh, to help you better kind of see what we mean by this authorship, take your Bibles and turn to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, the men who wrote the scriptures wrote without violation of their personalities. Their own human faculties were, were used. And, and it's illustrated here in Second Peter. Uh, Peter starts out in verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 1. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who brought the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. And then he goes down into verse 21. He says this, uh, For prophecy never had its origin in, in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that idea of carried along is the idea of a sail, uh, whenever you have a sail, if there's no wind in the sail, the ship does not move. And so these men moved like the Holy Spirit was like the wind that moved these men along to write the scriptures. And so when they write the scriptures, they are writing with their own personalities involved. Uh, like, for example, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He's like a first century investigative reporter who gives us the details of, of the land and the topography and all of the places of, of Acts and things like that. Uh, then you have John, who the beloved disciples, who writes with such passion in his works, or, or the Apostle Paul, who is very much the, the lawyer and the, 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 the one who's able to lay things out in a logical way. So each one of their personalities is il illustrated. So we have one book, we have one author, and we have one subject when it comes to the Bible. The one subject of the Bible is Jesus Christ and the salvation God provides through him. I was listening to one guy preach about the Word of God, and he said, if you ever get lost in the Bible, just look for Jesus. Just look for Jesus. Because this entire book is about Jesus. The one subject of the book we call the Bible is Jesus Christ. And don't lose sight of that or lose that view as we go through this and try to understand what's important. Uh, another writer said this. He says, the Old Testament Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the Revelation, Jesus is expected. It is one book, one author, one subject. So we're dealing with that. And again, we will say the Word of God, the Bible, Scriptures, and those are all interchangeable terms that we will use. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is look at three considerations when looking at the Bible. Three things to consider as we're looking at the Bible. The first consideration is the assault on the truth, the assault on the truth. Now, this happens early. If you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, the assault on the words of God takes place. In Genesis chapter 3, it says this, Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The first question of scripture is Satan questioning the words of God. And this morning, when we stand here, we are not standing here uh, thinking that everyone loves God's word. Everybody accepts God's word. We understand that there is an assault that dates all the way back to the beginning of life itself and time itself, where God's word was placed under scrutiny and under attack. The assault was real by Satan. Uh, He says, uh, God says you will die. Satan says you will live. God says you're going to only be allowed to have these. And so Satan says, look at who you have. You have this God who is all about limitations. He is narrow. He is unnecessarily restrictive. No choices for you. What kind of a God is that? And he goes on to say, you know, this God is afraid you're going to be like him. So he's jealous of you. Who wants to trust a jealous God? Who wants to trust? Can you really trust him? And so this morning when we talk about the the word of God, the Bible, uh, trust is going to be the end of this, right? In the end, can you really trust what God is saying? In the end, can you take this book and use it to make a difference in your life? Can you really trust it? The assault is real and dates all the way back to the beginning of time. The assault on scripture also is a part of history. Uh, The church's history includes many times where Christians were persecuted. And the persecution of Christians, we say, okay, we remember that. We understand that. But there are some of the emperors that understood that it was more than just the Christian that they needed to attack. For example, Emperor Diocletian. When he took over control of the Roman army, one of the first things that he did was he made all of his soldiers come together and offer a sacrifice to the pagan gods. Now, of course, the Christians... Uh, They serve one God and believe in only one God, and so they refused to make that sacrifice, and so he had them executed. And then what he would do is he would go to their place of residence or to their place where uh, they were doing their business, and he would search out and try to find any evidence or any scripture that they had, and he would destroy it. Those that were loyal to Diocletian oftentimes gained his favor by bringing copies of the scripture to him so that he could destroy them. Because he had this sense and this understanding that this word of God, this scriptures of God, this Bible that they had in its earliest forms and smallest forms was very important to them and it needed to be destroyed. And many times the the martyrs, the Christian martyrs, who came under attack and assault for their belief in God would cling to their scriptures and hold tightly to them and refuse to give them up even though giving them up could have meant life for them. Instead, they clung to them, understanding the importance. So throughout history, the attack and the assault on the Word of God has been real. In our lifetime, just as we pass through time, uh, we have experienced evidence of the assault against the truth of God. There has been the the, uh, Gnostic Gospels that gained a great following through the the writings of Dan Brown and his Da Vinci Code. Do you remember that? Coming under attack was the veracity and the truth of scriptures, an attack on them. Of course, as time passed, uh, those were found to be, again, not very important to what was going on, and it was a work of fiction that Dan Brown wrote. But the Word of God is also under attack by the pragmatists, those who want to tell us that this book 
is not sufficient for things like helping you with your marriage, things like helping you live your life. It is not sufficient for helping you with your children and allowing them to to learn uh, proper ways of life. This book is insufficient for that, is what the, the pragmatists tell us. And so the assault on the Word of God is real. And because the assault is real, we have to be prepared. We have to be ready. Now, some of you are sitting out there and you're saying, you know what, this is a done deal for me. And so I, I've already trusted and I believe what the Bible says. But there are others of you that are skeptics. And, and let me just say this, and I hope you understand the, the way in which I'm saying this. If you are skeptical of the Word of God, please try to find evidence for your skepticism. Try to find a reason for saying the Bible is not true or the Bible is not truth. There are times in discussions and conversations where you will encounter people and they will say to you, oh man, you know, uh, yeah, I don't believe the Bible. And you say, well, why? Well, when I was a kid in the church, all that pastor ever did was talk about giving. What does that have to do with the Bible? What does that have to do with what you believe about the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? And the answer usually is, well, no, but I know because all I ever talked about was giving. So it must have been a bad book. Or you've had an experience in church where it just was a bad experience. Well, then the Bible can't be true because my church experience was bad. Don't base what you think about the Bible and don't allow your assault on the word of God to be based upon those things. Instead, uh, try to have some sense of honor in the argument and do what you can to find out what the word of God is all about. There was a guy, his name is Lee Strobel. You may have heard of him. And he was an agnostic bordering on atheism. He was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And he was in that position. You know, what about this word of God? And so he chose to read it and to learn about it, then to prove everybody that it was wrong. Well, if you know Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel is now one of the foremost authorities on Christian apologetics. Because once he started reading it, and once he began to discover the evidence that was there, he found out that... uh, the Bible's true. So this morning, I guess there's kind of a double-edged to that reading, isn't there? If you are a, a skeptic and, a, 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 and kind of doubting, if you begin to read the Word of God, you are in for something. Because the Word of God is alive. The Word of God is like a lion. The Word of God is something we just need to release. And so if you allow the Word of God to be released into your life, strange things could happen. And so you have to ask yourself, am I really ready for that? So the assault on the word of God is true. The second thing is uh, trying to understand that not only do we need to consider the assault of the word of God, but also the authenticity of the word of God, the authenticity of the word of God. Now, the, the scriptures, as we have them, as they are collected together, all qualified under what was called a canon, a canon. It's just a, a list, a catalog that was put together. And there were several things that made for canonicity or for canon law. Uh, Humanly speaking, the the scriptures are a product of Christian consciousness. They really thought through and went through the books and said, okay, these are the ones that we will keep. But also, uh, the scriptures are uh, divinely done. Divinely speaking, uh, they are the process or they are a part of the Holy Spirit presiding over them and leading men to the conclusion that these are the books that we need to have. 
And the, the canonicity is something that is a part of not only human reason, but also divine inspiration and divine movement and working. So we have two of those things involved. And part of canonicity and part of understanding uh, the reliability of Scripture is seeing the manuscripts, the manuscripts. And when we talk about manuscripts, you start to go. And I don't want to do that, okay? So I will do my best to try to keep you uh, aware of what's going on. I'm, I'm not going to uh, avalanche you with a, a lot of uh, information, but just so that you can kind of get a glimpse of what's going on. There are men that have devoted their lives to this kind of stuff. Ravi Zachariah, uh, you know, these guys, uh, uh, J.I. Packer, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, F.F. Um, F. Bruce, Bruce Metzger, guys that you can find their books and they will go into details. Because some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, oh man, I just, I don't know if I can endure a statistical lesson. And others of you are like frothing at the mouth and you're, you're all excited because stats are just your thing. So I'm trying to strike a balance here. And so when we talk about authenticity, we talk about the manuscripts and we talk about the manuscripts, we're talking about copies of the word of God. No one has the originals, the autographs, the originals. We don't have the originals. They have since passed. But they judge the authenticity of the manuscripts on basically a couple of criterion. One of the criterion is what they call patristic quotations or the church fathers quoting these books. Uh, when we talk about church fathers, uh, we're talking about these men who are kind of the, the first articulators of Christian doctrine. Uh, we have men like Tertullian who talked about the Trinity. We have men like uh, Athanasius who talked about the Trinity. And we, talk, uh, we have men like Origen who wrote uh, about the uh, authenticity of Scripture. Uh, and or- Origen was so prolific in his writing that sometimes he employed 22 copyists. He was so prolific. But so anyway, so when we talk about this, we talk about these manuscripts. We're talking about does the do the church fathers use them? And just so that we're clear on the church fathers, the church fathers are are men who were familiar sometimes personally with the apostles and then through time had responsibility for what the church was all about. Before 313 A.D., uh, these church fathers wrote encouraging Christians because before 313 A.D., persecution was the way to go, right? Christians were attacked, persecuted. And then after 313, uh, Constantine becomes the emperor and Christianity is legalized. And so the role of the church fathers makes a shift. They go from encouragers to now the apologists because now it is politically advantageous to everyone to be a Christian, because the, the emperor is a Christian, so I should be a Christian, right? And so they then, the church fathers, begin to write, trying to discern the truth and trying to understand it and make sure that you understand what the truth is. So that you aren't just a Christian because of political expediency. And also Constantine and other emperors, they wanted Christianity to unite their empire, so therefore they didn't want a lot of doctrinal talk. And so the church fathers no longer had the threat from without of people trying to persecute them, now the threat came from within. What do we believe? And so they would write about that. And so what happens is these church fathers uh, write, and in their writings, they write the scriptures and use the scriptures to support what they're saying. Are you following me? What we're talking about then is these church fathers, evidencing Christian doctrine, use the scriptures. And they write and copy the scriptures into their works. So that at the end of the day, you look and say, wow, this guy really knew the scriptures or he really believed these were the scriptures. 
And when you have those kinds of uh, people writing those kinds of things, it lends credence and authenticity to what's going on. And so their writings became extra-biblical sources. So they wrote catechisms and lectures and things like that. And all of those things were filled with scriptures. So much so that one writer says this. Uh, he says, uh, Bruce Metzger in his book, The Text of the New Testament, he says this. He says, if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, the uh, patristic quotations or the church fathers quotations would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So do you understand what we're saying here? We're saying, you know what? Even if we had no copies of the manuscripts, the church fathers wrote so much in copying the scripture that we would have enough to do what we need for the New Testament. Okay, so that's part of what proves or what supports manuscripts. The second part is the manuscripts themselves. And the manuscripts are broken into two categories. Uh, they are, the question is, first of all, how many existing copies do you have? Do you have one, five, 100 copies? And then the other question is, how old are they? How close to the original are they? So these manuscripts are looked at and then evaluated on those two questions. Uh, like, for example, I teach uh, Western Civ to my students. And when we talk about places like Greece and Rome, we use primary source documents. And some of our primary sources are guys like Josephus, Herodotus, Thucydides, those kinds of guys. They are our primary sources that we go to to get information. Okay, So those guys, when you look at the manuscripts that they have and the age of those manuscripts, you can find a couple of things. First of all, Josephus... Uh, he has nine complete copies or manuscripts of his works. That's what we have of his. And everyone's like, wow, Josephus, he's, he's like an authority. And we've got nine of his copies. Uh, a, a guy like uh, Thucydides, he is our primary source for the Peloponnesian Wars. And he has eight copies of manuscripts of his work. And people are like, wow, Thucydides, we read that stuff. We believe it. Peloponnesian War, he's the man to go to on the Peloponnesian War. Okay. And, and then you have uh, someone like Julius Caesar who wrote about his wars, the Gallic Wars. You have ten copies. Uh, you have eight copies of Herodotus who writes about uh, Greek history. And then the, the golden or the, the highest standard of these uh, ancient uh, manuscripts of uh, antiquity is Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad is the gold standard uh, because he has 647 existing copies of his Iliad. All right. So you go from four to nine to ten to six hundred. And some people even include some uh, copies of the Iliad from the period of the Reformation and the Renaissance. And so they say, well, we're really we have fifteen hundred copies of the Iliad. And when you talk about these, you're talking about gaps between when it was written and when it was copied of between 800 and 2,000 years. But yet these works are held up as the highest level and uh, credibility that, that can be uh, matched. And so they are, all of our knowledge about those times come from those kind of manuscripts. So moving quickly to the Bible so as not to uh, lose you too much here. Uh, but when we, we move to the Bible, the Bible has 5,800 copies. Okay, so we're talking about Josephus, and we've got about nine copies of his, and everyone's like, wow, 
That's just amazing that we can get so much information from Josephus about first century life. And we've got these. And then the Bible has 5,800 copies. Do you, do you get the significance of that? So uh, there is a confidence. There is this understanding. Wow, the Bible really has some manuscripts to support it. F.F. Um, F. Bruce who uh, wrote a book, and it's voted one of the top 50 books that has changed evangelical thinking. It's called New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? He says this. He says, No classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are over 1,300 years old uh, or 1,300 years later than the originals. No one's going to doubt that. And then when he talks about Scripture, he says Scripture deserves that same consideration. He says this, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good attestation as the New Testament. There is none. And then when you take those copies, another thing that they do besides asking the question of how many and the dates, then they compare them to each other. And when they compare them to each other, they begin to see errors. And they say, oh, look, this guy copied it wrong. This guy copied oh, This guy made a mistake. Of those 5,800 manuscripts that we possess, there is a 99% correction rate between them. Ninety-nine percent over the period of time in which they cop. For the others, anything around the 50 to 60 percent, they're thrilled about. And so the authority and the understanding of what this scripture means to us, uh, the church fathers endorsing it, the manuscript evidence of supporting what's saying. Uh, D.A. Carson, who is another uh, Greek scholar that wrote about this, he says, The purity of the text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance in the texts. So the authenticity of Scripture, the New Testament in particular, has this kind of evidential proof, this kind of support. You say, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament is a whole different thing, right? I mean, there's a whole other part to that. And, uh, you know, I live by the old adage, you know, blessed are those who finish on time for they shall be asked back again. And so if we launch into the Old Testament, then we're going to be here for a while. Jeff said it last week when he was talking about the, the deity of Jesus Christ. He said, you know, I have 10 more pages on this. We live in the information age. And one of the marvelous things about the information age is that we should not be afraid that we're wrong. Instead, we should realize that we're right and there are a lot of people that agree with us. When doing research and trying to understand this, you will discover the support from secular people who aren't even Christians that say, yeah, this is reliable stuff. Uh, the Old Testament, of course, falls into the category of the Masoretic texts, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and things like that. So you can uh, do some search on your own if you have interest. But the, the whole point is uh, authenticating the scriptures is something that has been done, and we can trust what has been done. So the assault of the Word of God, it's true. The authentication or the authenticity, it's true. And the third thing and that is to consider the authority of the Word of God or the Scriptures. Authenticity is good. Doing the research and understanding, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But that's not for those who believe in Jesus Christ. It's for those that don't, 
who need that evidence. I love what Martin Luther wrote about this. He said, faith surrenders itself captive to the word of God. The scripture is not on trial. We are not judging it. It's judging us. As believers, we are being judged by the scripture. It is the authority. Uh, God spoke. What did he say? That's the real question, right? Not, well, I don't know if it really was him. Instead, yes, he spoke. Now, what did he say? Let's find out what he said because of the authority of the word of God, because of the authority of scripture. Uh, in the period of the Reformation, sola scriptura was one of their battle cries. And the whole idea was the, the sure rule of God's word by scripture or by God's word. Everything is judged, but nothing judges the scripture. It's the authority. It is the thing that gives us truth. For example, uh, historians would say, okay, how do we know about this, about Julius Caesar? Well, Julius Caesar said it in his works, the Gallic Wars. Well, how do we know this about Jesus? Well, because he said it in his work, the scriptures. And do we believe that? Oh, no, no, Julius Caesar is more reliable. No, Jesus is more reliable. He spoke. What did he say? He's the authority. He is the one to whom we, we turn and look to for, for the information that gives us redemption, that gives us hope, that gives us what we need to live the life that is before us, the authority of the Word of God. I, I've mentioned to you before, I have a friend, he is a jeweler that lives in northeast Ohio. We've been friends for over 30 years, and uh, we used to travel together until, you know, families and things like that. And we, we went to Chicago, we went to Toronto, we went to New York City and places like that, and uh, along with one of his business partners, and the three of us would travel. And we had been to Chicago and to New York, and the three of us were sitting around, and we were talking, and we were saying, you know, how much fun we had and how much we enjoyed it and the stuff we learned and everything. And I said, we ought to write a book. This is, this is some great stuff. We ought to write a book. And my friend, he kind of drops his head and shakes it, and he goes, who would read it? <laughs> he goes, we've been to two places. <laughs> what do we know? It's not like we're the authority on anything. You've been to two cities. What are you going to write about? Well, he's right. You know, I'm, I was no authority on travel. I still am not. But his point's real, isn't it? Don't you want to go to the authority that has experience in everything? that knows everything, that touches all parts of your life, that can bring to you what is necessary to make your life worth living, the authority of the Word of God. In Titus chapter 2, verse 15, uh, Paul writes this. He says, These then are the things you should teach. Talking about earlier in the book of Titus, he went through some things. And then he said, Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Uh, Do not let anyone despise you. He says, uh, encourage and rebuke with authority. The word authority there is the word like a commander. You be like a commander when you speak these things. And and then he uses this word. he, He says, do not let anyone despise you. He uses the word despise, which means to circumvent. Don't let anyone circumvent your authority. Well, what authority do I have? Well, you have the authority of the word of God. Well, that's how Jesus operated, isn't it? Remember in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he had the great Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what did it say? People were amazed by his teaching. (laughs) But what made it so amazing? Because of the authority by which he spoke. And they're like, wow, this guy's got authority. He's not like our other teachers. He speaks with authority. 
So this morning, as you begin to understand and begin to wrap your mind around what is real and what is important and what is uh, vital for life, the word of God should be important to you. The scripture gives you the authority to speak. Jesus said, I have this authority. And, and the, they even questioned him, didn't they? So where do you get this authority? And, and Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. I'm sorry, in John chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. See what Jesus is saying? I'm speaking what God has told me. So I am giving you the words of God. And then he gives us the opportunity to understand that if we are speaking the words of God and not talking about ourselves, then that gives us the authority. So this morning, I hope that we are able to understand that we don't need to shy away. You know, there is there are those that sometimes hold their breath when they hear about archaeological digs that are going on. Don't hold your breath. There is nothing that is going to come out that is going to make us say, oh, no, we made a mistake. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They will find things and they will make statements like the gospel of Judas. They'll talk about, oh, wow, the gospel of Judas. They, they were wrong. Well, where's the gospel of Judas today? It's no longer, it's no longer a deal. They found out it's not accurate. It's, it's not right. Harvard studies said, sorry, gospel, that's, that means, don't be afraid. Nothing is going to come. You know, you look at me and you think, wow, this guy is like 100 years old. That's to your advantage. I mean, I remember as a high school student hearing things, nothing came of it. And now 100 years later, nothing has come of it. Trust in what God's word says. It is the reality. It is the authority. Allowing ourselves to be uh, enraptured with what it is that God's word says is what's important. Uh, last week, again, Jeff, Jeff talked about uh, C.S. Lewis and his trilemma with Christ. When you look at Christ, you say that he is a liar, you say that he is a lunatic, or you say he's the Lord. And Jesus writes this, and so you, you, this is kind of a, 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 a situation where you can test this. In John chapter 5, verses 36 through 40, he says this, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, the word of God reveals who Jesus is. At the very beginning, we said one subject, Jesus Christ, him crucified, him uh, bringing salvation because of his death on the cross. That's what this book is all about. So you believe in Jesus and you believe that he is the Lord, then allow his word to fill you. Allow his word to encompass you. Allow the word of God to have the authority and the respect that it deserves. 
There is an old hymn that goes something like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Jesus Christ is the one to whom we attach ourselves. And when we learn about him, we learn about his word, and the Bible becomes the authority that it needs to be in our life. So that when Paul says to uh, Titus in Titus chapter 2 to, to speak with authority, it's not because my personality is bigger than yours. It's not because my brain is bigger than yours, but it is because my life is saturated with the word of God. And so I speak what the word of God says. And therefore, I have authority. This morning, as we, we want to stand, we can't help but reflect back almost 500 years ago. 500 years ago, on April 17th, Martin Luther was summoned to the presence of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. It was in the, uh, the German city of Worms where he stood and Johann Eck barked questions. The first question was, Dr. Luther, are these your works, your books, your pamphlets, are these yours? The question number two that Johann Eck barked at him very, very decisively and very uh, accusatively, he says, will you recant these words? And on April 17th, Luther shrunk from the moment. He said, I need another day to consider. And so Emperor Charles V said, you have that day. And he gave him that day and he went into his, his monk cell and he prayed and begged God for courage to stand. So the following morning on April the 18th, Martin Luther stood before Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and Johann Eck, the Inquisitor. And as he stood there, he said to the first question, these books are mine and published by me. He says to the second question, he gave a late lengthy kind of scathing review of the popes and the councils and what had been done and how they had led people astray. But then he came to the end and he says this, he says, unless convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have frequently erred and contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. This morning we stand captive to the word of God with nothing to be afraid of. Because when the assaults come, we have some of uh, documents to authenticate the truth. But more importantly, the word of God is the authority by which we trust and live our life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these saints this morning and those that may not know you. Thank you for their indulgence and for their patience as we uh, go through some things that might be just a little bit dry, but Lord, we know that they are important. And Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit take the words of your scriptures and put them into our minds so that we are trusting in the reliability of the book that we call the Bible, so that we confidently go to it, so that we, we consider it and make it a part of what helps us do the things that please you and honor you.
We love you, Lord, and ask so much for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.